Hey, everybody. Okay. This is our Thursday little lucid love fest. Everybody turn on your camera. Give me a big group hug because otherwise I'm suffering here in my little self-imposed cereal box. I don't know who's out there. That's great. Hi, everybody. Cool. Nice to see everybody. Happy, happy pre-holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Excellent. That's awesome. Okay, so here's the deal for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. It's all about me. So those of you who may be new to this event, every Thursday we come on. I usually do a short little spontaneous whatever comes to mind. And then basically it's, it's a so-called free-for-all. You guys can ask your questions. Today's just a little bit different. I have to do, um, I'm doing a presentation uh, in a little over an hour to a group of scientists. So I'm gonna have to cut today, it's the first time ever, I have to cut this one a little bit short, like a lot short. <laughs> so I can get ready for this thing. So I'm only gonna be able to go a half hour today, I apologize. Um, I just don't have the time and, and uh, yeah. So I actually, I'm talking to a group of academics and scientists. I've been mentioning this a little bit behind the scenes with you all. Um, we're gonna be talking about non-duality and, uh, and the nocturnal meditations, um, especially sleep yoga. I think I've been mentioning a little bit how I've been talking to some of these scientists. So they got together and, and they want me to do this little spiel. So because of that, I have to cut things a wee bit short. Um, I hope you understand. So here's what we're gonna to do today. No riff from me. I'm gonna go right to the questions. There were two questions that were sent in. And then so those of you who want to ping something into the chat box or raise your hand, um, as soon as I'm done with these, we'll open it up to you. And uh, thank you for indulging me with my request to run off and do my prep work for this thing. Um, so one from Joni. Um, yeah, these questions are so cool. In a previous hangout, you said that several lamas had said that pet euthanasia was okay and mentioned why. Could you explain that a little bit more? So there's three parts of this question. Yeah, I, I have heard this from a number of teachers. Uh, Kempo Rinpoche, my teacher, Trungpa uh, Rinpoche, others have said, and this is different from, from pets to, to humans. Um, the only type of euthanasia that I have heard, and again, this is one of these supercharged areas whew, where you know you just get a lot of different views from a lot of different people. Um, so I'm just gonna tell you what I've heard. Um, <clears throat> euthanasia for humanoids, not so great, unless it's what's called passive euthanasia, where you just stop eating and drinking. Um, if I have the luxury to die that way, that's what I'm gonna do. They say there's no karmic repercussions for that. <clears throat> but the, in terms of pets, the teachers that I've consulted and also heard and read about this topic <clears throat> is that uh, um, animals don't learn karmically from their suffering like we do. And that's why active use of euthanasia for us, they tend to frown on that. I'm not gonna dig my heels in and defend this. So if you're gonna come at me, um, I don't have much to say it on this outside of what the teachers have told me. Um, it makes sense to me, but um, I'll just, I'm reporting simply what I've been told and taught. <clears throat> and so it's okay to put a pet down if your intention is good um, because pets don't learn, you know, <clears throat> it's the end, it, it, it's the exhaustion of their karma. <clears throat> it doesn't create bad karma. 
if your intention is good. Um, so that's what they say around that. I write a little bit more about it in, uh, <clears throat> in my book, Preparing to Die. I have a whole section in there about pets and, and things to do before, during, and after. So I, I have quoted more there, so I'll ping you to that reference. Uh, Cole, where's karma stored that follows us from lifetime to lifetime? Yeah, um, where is karma stored? It's interesting. It's like, you know, I've been riffing these days playfully about there's all this jargon about carbon, carbon footprint. Don't leave a carbon footprint. Well, we don't want to leave a karmic footprint. Um, <laughs> and there's lots of ways to do that. This is a much bigger topic. How do you not leave a karmic footprint? That's a, a really wonderful, rich topic, topic. But to answer the question specifically, <clears throat> it's so to speak stored in the eighth consciousness, the uh, alia vignana, vignana, V-I-J-N-A-N-A, or the substrate mind. And it is, in fact, your karmic footprint that follows you. And that's also the karmic footprint, by the way, that becomes somewhat thunderous in the karmic bardo becoming. That's what's chasing you. If you read the bardo literature, there's sometimes these, oh, the terrifying, perilous straits of the bardo where all these demons and whatnot and everybody are chasing you. Well, there's nobody there to chase you. It's just like being chased in a nightmare. Same, same. It's your habits that are chasing you. Um, it's you know kind of reified in that imagistic way. Well, these things are chasing me. No, it's just your mind. So the alia, uh, the storehouse consciousness. Uh, last one, can a lama see how pure our mind is and our karma? Yes, depends on the, on the lama. Um, you know, there are some real ones out there and there are a lot more fakes. So fake llamas, uh, they can't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> in the gradations of lamahood, you know, the lama just means teacher. And th there's a vast array of levels of realization and awakening. Literally in Buddhism, depending on the system, there's what are called the 10 bhumis, 10 different levels of lama, of teacher, the 12 yogas. There's all these different gradations of lamas. And so a low level lama um, can't see anything. Um, the really, really, I mean, you know, the great ones, they can see everything. They have what are called the divine eyes. I write about this in my, the book I just published, Dreams of Light. I have a footnote from the Prajnaparamita Sutras about the five types of eyes. And one of these is, is in fact, this ability to see our karma. I had, I've had some really powerful personal experiences around this um, where my teacher was definitely really is like x-ray eyes. He was just beaming. He was like reading my body like a CAT scan. Um, it was a one of the great, experiences of my life being with the teacher I just felt I mean I felt I never felt so naked and I also never felt so loved he was literally he was he was just scanning me like a like an x-ray beam and it was just this un ineffable uh, you know he kind of had to be there like I'm not going to convince anybody but this is it was totally obvious to me that he was I was asking my stupid questions he was looking right through that and he was like it was like he was reading my karmic DNA it just there's no doubt in my opinion. And then later, later, when I read in the Prajnaparamita Sutras, that that is in fact part of these eyes, these divine eyes um, that literally can see this kind of thing. And as I've also heard other renditions where great masters, a little bit more uh, kind of evocative, they can smell your merit. They, they can, you know, they pick it up, sixth sense, they can smell you. They, they, they can just suss out where you are. On one level, we picked that up intuitively. I, I, I spent a year working uh, in a 
federal in the maximum security state prison. I also went down for years. I taught meditation here at the Supermax down in Colorado, where like the baddest of the bad are down there. It was such a fascinating experience for me. Um, you, you know, because sometimes you know the people, some of the people that would come into our little group were really, really good people. They just made a mistake. Um, and they were in there for like years. It was like, oh man, so sad. And others would kind of just drop in, kind of just shopping, whatever. And I tell you, it was so interesting. You could, I could tell, I would, I, some of these people, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even need to know their story. Um, like, you know, what did they do? And, you know, where are they? Because some of them would come in and you could just immediately say, boy, whew, there is some interesting karma here. So anyway, um, that's that. From Farza, dear Andrew, could you please describe in psychological terms how deity yoga functions? Well, there's a big question. By continuously imagining an alternate reality, we eventually merge with it and make it real? On one level, yeah. This is um, a couple of interesting things here, my friend, if you're listening. Um, First thing I would do is, while there is some provisional validity in psychologizing some of this stuff. Yeah, and, to, and the reason I say provisional <clears throat> is because, <clears throat> excuse me, Trungpa Rinpoche and others often psychologize the Dharma as a way to kind of translate it in cultural terms. They were cultural translators. Um, I think you can do that within a certain limit. You know, like he talked about enlightenment as ultimate sanity, that kind of thing. Um, but I also think there's a near enemy here that in my rendering of this, spirituality transcends but includes psychology. And so we have to be a little careful to psychologize everything. We don't, you know, there's no need. It's like, <laughs> um, spirituality doesn't need our psychology on one level, on one level. On another level, spiritual bypassing, you know, we need a lot of psychology. <laughs> Almost every meditator I know, honestly, and I'm, I'm actually creating a couple programs around this because um, I think it's such a big topic. Uh, everybody should be in therapy. I mean, no kidding. So many blind spots, but that's a different story. You know, deity yoga, this is a huge topic, my friend. Um, I can just say a little bit about it. One third, depending on <clears throat> the scholar you read, one third of all tantric Vajrayana practice is relegated to deity yoga. So this is a colossal technology. Um, <clears throat> it's also called generation stage practice, yanam practice. Um, and just briefly, uh, because again, it's such a monumental topic. Deity yoga works at a number of different levels. Um, on one level, it works as a form of shamatha. All meditation in Buddhism, all of them, can be put under the rubric of either shamatha or vipassana. And so uh, this works at both levels. On one level, the actual purely visualizing, the mental muscle of visualizing, that's a form of um, tantric shamatha, holding your mind on the image. Um, it also works, and this, I love this term, this is Lama Yeshe's term. When I read it decades ago, I said, man, we should use this term more often. He talks about you know, deity yoga as evolutionary stage yoga, evolutionary yoga. I, I thought that was extremely interesting. And um, <clears throat> this, boy, I wish we had more time to riff on this. This ties in really beautifully to a, a classic teaching that I have used a lot from the perennial philosophy um, that goes back to Plotinus. He talked about it in terms of efflux, reflux. Ananda Kumaraswami, Sri Aurobindo, P. 
people like that <clears throat> talk about this really, really compelling play, description of the play of the entire phenomenal world using the teachings of uh, what are called involution and evolution. This, this, uh, we should do an entire program on this. It's so interesting, it has so much explanatory power. But basically, in the, <clears throat> just to give you some sense of the scope of this, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> good Lord. Um, you know, imagine like an arc. I, I depict this as a circle. At the top of the circle is, is uh, death, emptiness, formlessness, luminous bardo, dharmata. Um, then there's this descending arc, the circle going down. <clears throat> this is the involutionary arc, involution. This is spirit, mind, whatever you want to call it, becoming involved, hence the term, involved in and as matter, as form. And so there's so much to say here. It's so bloody interesting. And you'll see where this ties in briefly to this whole practice. So you got <clears throat> Dharmakaya on top, <clears throat> the involutionary trajectory, bottoms out, so to speak, Nirmanakaya physical form. <clears throat> so sorry. And then begins what Darwin contributed, um, evolution, uh, the evolutionary trajectory, the return of matter back to spirit, so to speak. And so where this becomes super interesting, um, and here's the logic behind it. Uh, the first archetypes, and this, this is not archetype in the, uh, in the Jungian sense. This is archetype in the Greek sense, which is even more foundational. So in this case, uh, these deities are archetypes, just like they are in the Bardos, by the way. And so here's the logic. The first forms, archetypes, the first forms of involution are the last forms of evolution. Let me say that again. The first forms of involution are the last forms of evolution. And so therefore, when I read this term from Lama Yeshe, evolutionary yoga, it was like, oh my God, of course. That what you do with these, by visualizing yourself as a deity, explaining what this is, is again, this is a really big topic. <clears throat> you imagine yourself as a deity, that's an archetype. You recite their mantra, that's their seed syllable, that's their email address. <laughs> And basically what you're doing is you're stepping up into that bandwidth of your identity, sabogakaya, for those of you who know that term. So it's therefore a form of elevationism. Instead of reducing everything in this degraded reductionist you know, matter, reducing everything to the profanity of matter, deity yoga is elevation. It, it, it lifts everything up to pure spirit. Um, and so, uh, ew, geez, what else can I say about um, it helps you, it, it greases the skids, it actualizes your identity at this more refined level. And it also, just to show you how far it goes, it also works as a type of transitional object. If you're a psychologist, you can look at deity yoga as a form of transitional object from the work of Donald Winnicott. Um, I'm just gonna bracket that because again, we're talking about a week's worth of material here to talk about. But lastly, what it does, um, you know, so many things, is it also works with developing a fluidity and a malleability of identity. That not only are we not just one fixed locus of identity in our physical domain, <clears throat> you know, we can be a father, a brother, a husband, a grandfather, a boss, an employee. You know, we have this kind of chameleon-like flexibility and identity at a, at a kind of horizontal level. 
Deity yoga teaches, um, shows you the fluidity of your identity at a vertical level. <clears throat> and so here, it's very interesting. I actually got this from W.C. Fields. Very interesting along these lines where he once said, <clears throat> it's not what they call you, it's what you answer to. <laughs> That's like beautiful. So if somebody calls you a schmuck or whatever, you don't have to answer to that. You're not a schmuck, you're a deity. And so that's why when the teachers come along and say, you're not Joe Schmo, you're not Joe Schmuck, no, you're Padmasambhava, you're Chenrezi, you're Vajrayogini, you're Chakrasambhara, you're Kala Chakra. Respond to that. Yes, that's me. That's me. I'm not Joe Schmuck. I'm Chakrasambhara. It's not what they call you. It's what you answer to. So don't answer to this other stuff. Don't let people take you down answer to what you really are. <clears throat> so what these teachings are saying, <clears throat> you are Chakrasambhara, you are Vajrayogini, you are any of these hundreds and hundreds of deities that all represent the archetypal nature of your awakened mind. So this stuff, this is a colossal topic. I think you can get a sense of how big it is. So that's what comes to mind. Okay, a few more. Uh, are we meeting next week? I oh, is next week Christmas Eve? Holy moly. Ah, what should we do? You guys vote in the chat box. My vote is probably take the day off because um, I'm going to be playing golf in California. <laughs> but see, I would give it up to be with you. But you're right. That, so let's, let's, unless you guys ping me otherwise, let's take a week off. Good question. Yes, happy 200th birthday, 250th birthday, a Beethoven, I knew all about it. Um, the radio stations here um, have been playing 250 minutes of music by Beethoven every single day. He's, he and Chopin, these are my guys. Um, so yes, happy 250th birthday of Beethoven, for sure. Love this guy. Karina, I have a question. Last week, we were talking about death and caring for terminal patients or dying persons. I'm a nurse, and I wonder what your view is on sedatives and morphine in terminal states? Yeah, uh, good question. They have a place if, if as you know, um, as a palliative caregiver, especially palliative care physicians, everybody will tell you morphine is a godsend. Um, but the, here's the trick with how this relates to the spiritual business is that um, you, you want to, and this is why you need good palliative care people to titrate this, that you want to die in, in a state that's not too screaming pain because, you know, using the theories, uh, tenets of what's called proximate karma, last thought um, on your mind during a transition has a huge effect on the next moment. You don't want to die in tremendous pain. That's where morphine comes in. Um, you don't want to die totally doped out. Um, because that can predispose you towards lower, again, if you believe in this stuff, um, that can predispose you towards what's called animal realm, narcoticized states of rebirth. So a good, a good palliative care physician, especially if the advanced directives are there, this is what you should do in your Dharma spiritual wills and have your people enforce it. You wanna to try to maintain as much level of awareness as you can but without being just in screaming pain. And, and that's where the palliative care people can work with you on this. Um, if you're, this is for the average person. 
if you're a really, really advanced practitioner, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you're no longer identified with these surface dimensions of mind where these agents actually work. So these agents work on the brain, which works on gross levels of mind. Uh, a practitioner, especially a so-called spiritual master, none of this affects them, period. And so therefore it really doesn't matter with someone like that. This is why, you know, his holiness 16th Karmapa, when he was dying at really advanced stages of cancer, shocked his physicians because he should have been in screaming pain. And every time they came in to see him and they'd ask him, he goes, oh, I'm fine. He'd have this big beaming smile. And he'd always ask, well, how are you? He was more concerned about how they were. So for someone like that, it doesn't matter because they're no longer affected by brain. They're no longer affected by these gross states. Um, but for everybody else, this is where, yeah, you want, you want to have a middle way approach, not too tight, not too loose, and have a, a kind of a titrated, graduated state of awareness where you can have some level of um, consciousness. And then, you know, basically in most levels, of course, not always, you know, your body will take care of things, but not always, you know, the endogenous, the endorphins, the endogenous morphines, sometimes they need to be augmented. Um, so something like that, uh, Karina, this is a, a good question. Um, try to find the middle way. Do I have any tantric deity sadhanas? Yes, I have a ton of them. If I could take my camera and swing it over here, uh, you probably can't see it from here, but every one of those texts on that third shelf, where is it? Well, I'll see if I can point to it. Those are all my sadhanas there. I've got a ton of them but you can't have them. <laughs> Wait, oh, see, that's my karma. I can't get this back on because I'm being a jerk. <laughs> yes, again, I'm not sure what you're asking here. Do I have a bunch? Yeah, I have a ton, as does anybody. I'm not special, right? I've just been doing this for decades. Um, do I have any that I can give you? Um, maybe that's the implication. No, not really. Um, and there's reasons for that. It's not because there's some like secret handshake and you have to join some club. There's a, re there's a reason why you have to get these empowerments. It, it's, it's a way to trigger that archetype within you. But you can do sutra deity sadhanas. Um, and we did this in our, in our last dream yoga class. Um, we did a, a Buddha Shakyamuni uh, sutra level sadhana. You can do Tara sadhanas. Um, that are more available. So I'm not quite sure where else you're going with that question. Uh, Nash, and then we can open it up to everybody. Hi, Andrew, beginner here. Cool, welcome. Beginners are, beginners are most welcome. Zen mind, beginner's mind. Keep that beginner's mind. What does he say? I just wrote a, a, a rip on it yesterday. In the beginner's mind, there are infinite possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few or basically none. So keep that beginner's mind. Currently reading your dream yoga book. Thank you. My question isn't as advanced as others. That's cool. Um, more than welcome. But whenever I try to do awareness meditation, although I can manage to stay aware present longer, my mind seems mushy. And I can't focus as well during the day. Is this normal? Uh, yeah, it can be, um, Nash. And so uh, when you say awareness meditation, if you could come on live and maybe talk to me a little bit about that, I could be more specific because awareness meditation can mean a bunch of different things to me. 
uh, are you talking about open awareness? Or are you talking about what? Um, if you're doing some of these more kind of formless practices, at first, um, because we're all, we, when we first do these, Nash, we're all fumbling. We're all stumbling around faking it. I mean, everybody does. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I, I so remember every single practice, bar none, I'm so thick. Every single practice that I did, it took me a really long time to get the hang of these things, especially the nocturnal meditations. Stumbling, fumbling, falling, like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And, you know, so you just keep going, you just keep going. And slowly it becomes more and more familiar. But yeah, when you first do these more open awareness, formless practices, one of the near enemies of space is spaciness where the mind gets mushy. And so um, and the way that this works here, a very powerful meditative maxim teaching is not too tight, not too loose. And also finding the middle way between excitation and laxity. Um, it, usually what happens with these more formless practices is we fall into the error of laxity, just spacing out. The mind, your mind just goes like, you know, just goes like soggy, mushy, flat, whatever totally normal. So you can do a number of things there. Um, first of all, be aware of that trap when you start to zone out, tighten your posture, raise your gaze, literally look up, take a really deep breath and in, in, inject some um, energy, just focus for a little bit and then open, focus and then open. Um, sometimes you can take a couple of really deep, slow uh, breaths without hyperventilating to oxygenate everything. Sometimes getting up, walking around, um, you know, literally um, getting some fresh air kind of thing can help. And if you find your mind is still super soggy, then um, take a nap. <laughs> really, don't fight it. Don't fight it. Because um, otherwise, like, there's no fun in that. So um, first of all, is it normal? Yeah, totally normal. Stay with it. It will make more sense to you. You'll, you'll become more familiar with it. It'll be like, yeah, I, I, I got the hang of this. I can get it. I can get a beat on this. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's all normal, my friend. So raise your posture, take a deep breath, you know, maybe focus your gaze a little bit. And then if you need to stand up, sometimes if you need to just shake things off a little bit, because sometimes what happens is the pranas, the winds get stale, the energy, the wind energy gets flat. So you can do certain like raising wind horse practices, um, anything to kind of innervate. Okay. Yeah, next Thursday after that is New Year's Eve. Uh, yeah, we'll let you know what's going to happen there. We won't go three weeks out. We'll probably do, I mean, I'll talk to Andy and what you guys want to do. We'll prop, my guess is we'll probably skip next week. Um, and then, you know, whether we do the next week on New Year's Eve, we, you know, we're adults, we have credit cards, we can do whatever we want. So stay tuned. We'll send you a note. So um, I can take one or two before I have to get ready for my science presentation thing. Anybody have a question? Yeah, let's, uh, we'll do Lorraine and then Myra. Hi. Hi. Um, hi, Andrew. Um, I wanted to just uh, give a little offering of something that um, oh. I had uh, uh, when my uh, stepfather, you know, father passed away two and a half years ago, I contacted uh, a lady called Kunzang, I will not say this right, probably, Kunzang Deshen Chodron at uh, Saraswati Bhawan, uh, 
Ferba Thinley Ling, which is um, Iowa. Uh, and uh, I contacted her because of her work with um, the Bardo and the stages of, um, of death. And she'd uh, just lost her husband uh, six months before, uh, Lama Dawa Shodak Rinpoche, who was a, um, a divine mirror divinator. So she'd lost him. And so uh, she uh, had offered me some support and I asked for mirror divination to be done for my father. And then I sort of followed a little bit of, of, um, of her uh, Facebook page and her work. And uh, I wondered if I could just offer something she'd written recently about his Lovely. passing. Beautiful. Thank you. Oh, it's too loud here. Um, today, so this is referring to the, the Lama as he's uh, going into uh, Tukdam uh, in the process. Today, as he was lying in bed, appearing to be sleeping, he suddenly opens his eyes. He sees Kal Sang and I sitting next to him and tells us that he's just visited the Bardo. He describes how he was trying to drink a cup of tea, but he could not figure out the distance between his hand holding the teacup and his mouth. As he brought the cup to his mouth, his hand and the cup simply passed right through his head. Then he thought to himself that if this is the case, he should be able to change the cup into anything. He then willed that the cup become dry and it turned into ashes, which disintegrated in his hand. Realizing that none of this was real, he put one foot through a wall. Then he walked on a thin string like a mouse. Seeing a white shirt with a red collar, he replicated many of the same shirts, but smaller and smaller in size. He was able to put on all the shirts, even the very smallest one, without changing the size of his body. The bardo is like that, he says, but if you don't recognize it, then you don't know what to do and how to control. If you recognize that this is just your mind's emanation, then you can play and enjoy like that. Thank you for letting me share. Oh, that's bloody fantastic. It just makes me smile. I mean, not, not because he passed, but because he, you know, what he's able to share, it's just fantastic. And I have to tell you one thing, every, every, you know, virtually with everything that you shared, this is exactly what you do in dream yoga, literally. Every, literally everything you shared that what he said is what you do in dream yoga practice, which is why dream yoga came about as a preparation for death. You do exactly everything he said, you do it in the dream. And, and so then, you know, I'm sure he was probably a dream yoga practitioner as well. Um, death is literally referred to in the Tibetan tradition as the dream at the end of time. And so just as a little, I don't want to um, take away from the beauty of what you said, but, but basically, you know, what we do um, in our dream state now can absolutely positively grease the skids to have these types of experiences. Um, and therefore, also when we die, it's a, a very, I think, very helpful thing to understand, probably answers the question that's, that's asked more than any other, where do you go? Where do you go when you die? Well, you just simply transition from one dream to the next. Um, it, literally, it's just a different type of dream. That dream is just a little bit less de-reified. It's a little bit more fluid. So I don't want to um, take away from the elegance of what you shared. It's just fantastic. Thank you so much. Love it. Thanks, Marion. Okay, let's bring in Myra next. Do it again. Hey, Myra. Hey, are you kidding? Okay, cool. 
Um, it's almost like we should end there with that last question. It was so yeah, beautiful. No, so really I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. That's okay. It's all good. Okay. Um, I find myself when I'm teaching my classes, uh, saying more and more of what you're saying, because I've been listening to so many hours, I guess. Um, and I always giving credit, um, never taking it like I say it, but I was thinking that in Christianity, in the Bible, uh, the instruction to the disciple is to go and make, you know, to spread the gospel. And in, I know that I have seen that in Buddhism, uh, one of the instructions is that you go and teach what you know and to share to whatever level, to your pet, to your friends, to your... So what is, the, um, what is that instruction? Can you um, say a little bit more? And, and I'm just confessing, I'm saying so much of what you say all the time. <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> we're, all, we're all the same at that deepest level. So I, I, it's still, maybe say a little bit more, Myra, it's not entirely clear what you're saying, that I, asking. Yeah, I heard that in Buddhism, you know, when the Buddha, he didn't want to teach at first because he thought it was not going to be understood. And then he was right. told that he should teach. But I have seen that in Buddhism somewhere and I do not find now when. when part of what you're um, not duties, but what what you do when it begins to permeate your being is that you begin to share and teach the teachings that you have huh. received. But you begin to share the teachings. Yeah, and it seems that there is an urge of so many people that, like, if you go to one of this uh, your dream yogas, then from there it could be five or six people that are teaching dream yoga. But I think it's from a desire to share the goodness and the good news that that you transmit. Yeah, that's the, that's the key right there is what's the motivation. You know, it, this is a really uh, interesting topic. Um, yeah, you know, the, the issue of sharing versus proselytizing. Um, my, my take on this, and, and I have to say this is my whole thing. I never had, I, I don't consider myself a teacher. I might be a spiritual friend. I had zero aspirations to do anything like what I'm doing now. I mean, like really none. But what, what eventually happens or often happens with people is just, you know, um, <clears throat> because of the play of the phenomenal world, certain <clears throat> opportunities arise. So there's, I think we have to be very careful when we share that we're always, <clears throat> in fact, sharing as a, as a, as a gesture of offering. <clears throat> I know some people, and I can name a, a number of them, go so far um, is to say that, you know, I, I, I will never do anything unless I'm invited. Um, I, did, I had that, that view for like 20 years. And um, then I realized, you know, I, I was talking to some other my lamas about this whole issue of sharing. And, and they basically said, you know, it, it's, it's time to share. Um, and so my default on this, Myra, is, you know, you have to really listen to your own heart, your motivation. Um, if you feel that what you have can be of benefit to others, then there will be an opportunity where that will arise somewhat naturally um, without you know, kind of forcing it. Um, very often also we can teach without saying a word. Um, our mere presence can transform. Uh, just the way we relate, just the way we live teaches. And so whether we're an overt blah, blah, blah teacher like you know, ah, moi and others, or whether we just teach through our own just life in the world, I think it's a very personal um, decision for people. I tend to actually appreciate the ones who are more reserved, the ones who are a little bit more quiet. But again, in this day and age, again, I've heard more and more these days that this age is so dark 
there is so much need for light um, that you know people who have some level of um, experience or realization really should you know share their candles, so to speak. So somewhere in there, I, you know, I, I I have a hard time just saying do this, don't do that. Somewhere in there, we have to find our own ways. You know what what really speaks to us. Um, and I think if your heart is open then you'll be surprised the world the world will call you forth it's like what happened with the buddha you know brahma and indra came down and said hey dude you know you're being stingy get up off your cushion you <laughs> i don't want to translate it in my terms get up off the cushion you whatever and and do your thing um and so usually in my experience some version of brahma indra will appear to you Something will invoke you to say, step forth. Um, but that's just me. That's my riff. That's my style. That's my bias. You know, other people may have different ways of dealing with it. Um, always keeping in mind adages like this, right? He who knows does not speak. He who speaks does not know. Classic Taoist adage. Tuku Ujin Rinpoche, you know, giving your experience away inappropriately is like being in a dark cave with a candle and giving your candle away. You're left in the dark. So those are some of the parameters that I would play with. Um, and all the while, you know, it's like, what's my motivation here? Why am I really doing this? Do I really need to say this? If I say this, will I really help this person? Then say it. Don't think about it, just do it. If it's like, ah, you know, I'm not so sure, a little smelly, a little self-aggrandizing. Oh, look how much I know. Don't think about it. Don't do it. <laughs> okay. So somewhere in there. Okay, dear. Okay. Hey, you Thank guys, you. I got to go. Um, I've got the science thing really in little, just in an hour. I got to get ready because I, I have to sound intelligent and prepare all these big words <laughs> for all these scientists. I'm actually quite excited about it. I'll tell you how it goes. Um, but this is the first time I've ever had to cut one of these things short. It's because I have this thing uh, in, in less than an hour and I kind of get, got to get ready for it. So thank you, everybody. Sorry, it was a little bit short. We will send you a little note um, about what we're going to be doing. Um, you know, and uh, we, uh, we'll just see. I, I don't think we'll go a full, you know, we'll probably skip one of the next two weeks. I don't think we'll skip both. Um, but in the meantime, thanks again for your beautiful questions. Thanks for coming on for, for at least 40 minutes or so with me. It's always great to see everybody. Um, happy pre-holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy Beethoven birthday. And... Uh, See you soon. Thank you.